Welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Seth Williams, and I'm a veterinary student at the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. Today on the podcast, we're going to get into some great tips and tricks to making both our clients and our patients' experience at the veterinarian's office one that they look forward to and really enjoy. It's far too common to hear horror stories of fractious cats and nervous dogs misbehaving at the vet's office, and when the animals get stressed out, more often than not, the owners can get equally or even more stressed out. And all this leads to is less compliance, unhappy clients, and patients that you may not ever get to see again. So I'm super excited to welcome my guest for today, Dr. Julie Reck, who's going to help us out with this topic and provide some insight on how to make the veterinary experience much, much better for our clients and our patients. Dr. Reck is a veterinarian with a passion for creating new communication avenues with her pet owners. In 2010, she published Facing Farewell, which is a book that's dedicated to providing pet owners with information that assists them with making difficult end-of-life decisions for their pet. And in 2011, Dr. Reck opened the Veterinary Medical Center of Fort Mill, which is located in Fort Mill, South Carolina. And earlier this year, in 2017, Dr. Reck joined the Fear Free Executive Council and has been a major advocate and a major leader in the Fear Free Initiative. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Reck. How's it going? Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. I'm really excited to, to talk to you and, uh, and for you to share some insight on your experience and, and uh, an expertise on, on communication and, and the Fear Free Initiative and, and making the experience of going to the veterinarian's office a lot much better for pets and, and their owners. So I wanted to first just start off by asking you a little bit about your background, what's your journey, how'd you get to where you are today, and, um, and just who you are. Well... One of those kids that always had my heart set on becoming a vet. I thought it was going to be a horse vet uh, all the way up until the last year of vet school where I felt that riding horses was probably going to be my my extended journey with them uh, and that I would become a small animal practitioner. So that was a, a quick adjustment for me and I had to recalibrate. I was really an expert reading body language of the prey-based animals mm-hmm. or things that really want to run away from you when they're frightened versus the predator-based, that was a whole new learning curve for me. So that probably took me about 18 months to two years to really get comfortable handling dogs and cats that weren't my own pets. Right. I got there and worked as an associate for two years in a big bustling practice just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina and then branched out and did some spay-neuter work for two years. And while I was working with our local humane society as a spay-neuter surgeon, I started a home euthanasia service, first one in Charlotte area. And that was great because it was the beginning of some business experience for me. Mm-hmm. To get comfortable providing a service, meeting client expectations, doing that on my own and that really helped me gain confidence so that I could open up a full brick and mortar practice, which happened in 2011, uh, just south of Charlotte and Fort Mill, South Carolina. So now we have the Veterinary Medical Center, Fort Mill, and we are home to anywhere from three to four associates. We've got about 22 staff members supporting us. We're AHA accredited. 
cat-friendly certified, and now heavily involved in the fear-free transformation that's hitting veterinary medicine. So that's all been very exciting. Excellent. So speaking of fear-free, what exactly is fear-free? That's a great question. So fear-free is a whole new approach to actually how we communicate and interact with our patients. Fear-free is often quickly explained as, well, it's just giving our patients treats. And it's, in my opinion, so much more than that. It's really a layering of your patient approach and your techniques that are going to lead to this transformative experience for your patients. So it's everything from how the patients experience your lobby. Are they encountering a crazy chaotic environment where there's other dogs and cats that are stressed that will immediately cause their cortisol to surge and create fear, anxiety, and stress right off the bat? Is it uh, your exam room? Does it have the overwhelming smells of cleaning agents? Or does it have the nice, pleasant, calming pheromones that are species-specific in there? Mm-hmm. And then it goes down to how you're approaching your patients, how you're reading their body language, and then even uh, turning on its head uh, how we consider medicating some of these patients. When I only graduated from vet school, it wasn't just 10 years ago, but the thought process was really that medications were to be a last resort. And Fear Free really retrains us to take a different approach on that. We really want medications to be on the forefront of that. We don't want to wait until the pet is completely at level five fear, anxiety, and stress scale. So that 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 was the biggest transformation I experienced by becoming Fear Free certified. Great. Because it's interesting. Now, granted, I am on the cusp of entering my clinical experience at vet school. Um, so take that for what it's worth. But it in my first two years of, of didactic learning, we really don't spend much time on the emotional aspect of what goes on in the head of, of our patients. It's the, to the extent of what we've learned is just about how to restrain them, how to hold them safely, mainly, I think, for for us as doctors and for our staff members. And there's not a lot of focus on ways to make the patient less stressed, let alone, I don't even think we talk about stress being a factor in the visit. So it's interesting that, A, that we're not really uh, taught that in vet school, let alone uh, have it discussed. Um, But it's really great to see that there is something out there, while it is, I think, relatively recent, that, that we're trying to focus a lot more on the experience for our patients and for our clients, um, which is not really taught in vet school. You're hitting the nail on the head with that. And experience is truly a key word here. We're going to touch on that a little bit more. But when I talk about free free, I actually feel there are different stages of before and after that happen when you embrace this new methodology. So there's the obvious patient to incorporate these fear-free techniques and you can start to see your patients transform by having reduced fear, anxiety, and stress, actually enjoying their veterinary visit. They'll participate by um, engaging in the treats. They'll actually be willing to go to different parts of the hospital. Some cases not even want to leave the veterinary clinic when it's been really successful. But there's also transformations that happen to the individual veterinary professional once you become fear-free certified. So your experience as where you are in vet school is very, very similar to mine. We didn't discuss the emotional 
experience that the pet would have, and I was very unprepared upon graduation. I knew I was very comfortable working up a case. I knew exactly what tests we would need to run. I knew what symptoms I need to be looking for for certain diseases. Where I would be lost would be situations that either the pet was too overwhelmed to let me do a thorough examination, or if the pet was too overwhelmed to allow us to get the sample or the test needed. And if that was happening before I reached a diagnosis, my training had instilled fear in me to medicate an animal that you didn't have a diagnosis on. So if you have an ADR, just a lethargic 14-year-old cat, and it's not letting you get a blood sample, it's, it's very intimidating coming out of vet school to sedate that patient without a diagnosis. So fear-free really will help in that beginning transition because that was very, very difficult for me personally in my first two years of practice. Gotcha. And I would imagine too now, because I've spoken with a few, some students at other vet schools, and I think that it's still pretty much the case that, that you and I just described, that there's not a lot of talk, again, in the didactic portion of our education about the emotional experience of our, our patients. So I'm glad that that's it's it's uh, it's become a little bit more prominent in the discussion of what we're uh, what we're trying to accomplish. So, it's so important because you know while you guys are busy getting your training out here in the industry, one of the concerning trends is that we're actually seeing a reduced rate of veterinary visits, mm-hmm. and a big contributing factor of that is that people are now so attached, and vets are such a key part of the family that. The notion of the stress that we'll incur from the veterinary visits is actually keeping people from entering our hospitals. So it's important for the patient's experience as well as ours as a veterinary professional, but it's also important to keep the profession going in the right direction. I, myself and a lot of uh, other people in the industry feel that that is really needed to make sure that this trend can be uh, reversed and that we can actually see veterinary visits increase again. Right, definitely. Well, let's start from um, from what you think us as new grads are going to see if we go into a, a practice that, let's say, is the 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 classic old school practice where none of these fear free tactics are in place, and it's kind of the old old way of doing things, if you will. What do you think we're going to be seeing that would indicate to us that the pet or the client is stressed out, or there's room for improvement there with their experience? Absolutely. One of the first giveaways is if that pet is not interested in taking any kind of treat, that's an indication that fear, anxiety, and stress has is beginning to reach a concerning level. So you'll want to, if when you see that, you want to go ahead and take a step back, really start to assess this pet's body language. Mm-hmm. You want to incorporate considered approach as well as touch gradient when you're working with that pet. A lot of times I start my physical exam around the rib cage area and I work backwards and then I go back to the front of the patient. Whereas it used to be, I would start at the tip of the nose and work my way back to the tail. And the reason is that pets are a lot more comfortable being touched in that trunk area of their body as opposed to the face. Mm-hmm. So it gives them a few minutes of a warm up. Hey, I'm not gonna hurt you. They can get used to that. It almost feels a little bit like a massage in the beginning. And then I've established a little bit of a rapport with them that we can do some of the more intimidating 
front end examinations. So that's been a real benefit there, but you definitely want to watch body language as well as if they are willing or not to take treats. Gotcha. That's a good, good way to look at it. Um, and then can you describe just some, some of the basic things like you were, you were beginning to do about just with the physical, physical exam and, or some of the, the easy ways, the, the first things that we can do as new graduates on making that fear, stress, and anxiety as low as possible. Good, good. So, um, and there's, there's certain things you're going to have control over and certain things you won't as a new associate uh, in a practice out of vet school. So you won't have necessarily autonomy of your schedule or how the lobby flow is, but anytime that you can be a little bit of aware of how your patients are experiencing your front lobby area and anything that you have control of, I would suggest you pay close attention there because that's where your patients first begin to experience their veterinary visit. So for instance, if you are seeing multiple appointments and you're getting behind your schedule and now you have multiple of your patients out in the lobby, if you could go and have an extra assistant or staff member go and check on this patient if they are close to one another, if it's a dog and a cat and they're close to one another, go ahead and have them seated a little bit farther apart in the lobby. If it's a cat and a carrier, they could bring out a nice feel away spray towel to put over the carrier, making it a dark, more quiet environment. If the carrier is on the floor and that's intimidating to the cat, or if the cat is on a higher object and that's bothering the cat, you can replace the carrier. So there's a lot that can happen in just the lobby to help if a pet is highly, highly stressed, but you want to be managing your schedule and your patient's experience, even when they're not in the exam room as much as possible. Once you get into the exam room, if your clinic participates in using pheromones, um, when you first start your shift, I always spray Adaptil, which is the dog common pheromone, basically from ankle to waist, mm -hmm. and it's about five sprays, and then I do feel away from waist to my neck. And that will last on fabrics for about four to five hours. So if you're working an eight hour, eight to 10 hour shift, you'll just need to reply maybe on your lunch break or so. But that's a great way to be wearing both scents. These scents are not going to, they're species specific. So dogs are not thrown off by the feel way. They don't recognize it. They don't have the receptor for it and vice versa. Okay. But you're typically going to be first, the dogs will be first approaching you kind of at knee height. Whereas with cats, it's going to typically be your arms and your chest that are interacting with, with your feline patient. So it's a great way to kind of enhance that. And if it's a busy day, you're not having to reapply those pheromones between each visit. You can also be aware of your stethoscope because that's going to touch every single patient. And really, I don't see seem to feel that many of the dogs mind, you know, if I had just used it on a cat, the dogs are terribly mortified. But your feline patients, will be quite intimidated if your stethoscope has a canine scent on it. So I'll often wipe down my stethoscope before I go into a feline appointment with a feel away wipe. Or you could just even spray feel away on a paper towel and wipe down your stethoscope with it if you only have it in the spray form. So those are things that you can definitely control. You can also control how you're approaching the patient. You can enter the room. Usually I'll just greet the the client, and then I'll go ahead and kneel down and give the pet an opportunity to come up to me. Avoiding direct eye contact so you're not staring your patient down works really well. 
I take a few minutes if the if I need to get any other information or just confirm some information that my technician had collected in the history form. And then I get started. Usually if the patient will begin to approach me or they have if they've migrated over back to their owner, I can get a little situated so that the owner can still participate and comfort their pet while I begin interacting with them. And those are things that I find quite helpful. Interesting. Now, another question I had for you that I want to get your take on is something that I experienced when I was working in a clinic this summer, and that is the location of where we do our physical exams for both dogs and cats. Now, I know that with cats, they like to be on rather the higher the surface, probably the better with dogs. It may be the opposite, but, and, and this question, I guess for me personally is really aimed at dogs. I think more so because oftentimes when those dogs are placed on a table, that's what four and a half feet off the ground that they did not really enjoy that. And after myself becoming fear free certified earlier this summer, this is when I started to pay attention to it, that when those dogs got up on that table, it didn't really, uh, benefit either party in this case. So I'm wondering where you do your physical physical exams for both uh, cats and dogs and, and any recommendations to that you would have for us. Yeah, I probably do about 90% of my canine exams on the floor in our exam rooms. Uh, it, sometimes really small patients will go ahead and put on our table. We have fold-up exam tables in all of our exam rooms, which is really a nice feature because it makes it, the room is a lot more spacious if there's not a stationary table taking up so much space. And I think our clients and patients really enjoy that. Mm -hmm. if, if it's a small patient or a feline patient, we're going to end up on the table because we need to be eye level to do, sometimes it is a little bit difficult to do an ophthalmic exam or even an otoscopic exam on a really small patient all the way down on the floor. Right. Only bend over but so much. So those cases we will, we always put either a fear-free mat or a towel so that they're not interacting with the cold, slippery stainless steel surface. And I've underestimated that so much in my career uh, before becoming fear-free certified. In fact, I actually viewed anything that was a, a textile, per se, in the veterinary hospital as just something that could harbor pathogens, you know? Right. Um, and we, we would have some towels and we would have some blankets, but we rarely use them because to, in my, you know, for my training, it was just, well, you know, that could just be another way that contagious diseases could get transmitted back and forth. I really underestimated how much anxiety these pets experience from either slipping or from the really cold surface on the stainless steel table. Right. And then just the thing I'm thinking about right now is for those really small patients, like let's say the small cats or even like a little, a little chihuahua or something along those lines, what about doing the exam in the owner's lap? Is that something that could sometimes be indicated? Yeah. And I will do that. Um, I'm careful, I don't want to compromise the quality of my exam, so if I feel like I'm just not getting a good look at the retina or if I'm not able to get down to actually see the eardrum, then I will readjust. And, but, but if it isn't appropriate, I am actually very comfortable doing it yeah, with the pet in the owner's lap. And a lot of times that really does help reduce fear, anxiety, and stress. Gotcha. Great. 
Now, my next question for you, which still has us in the exam room, is something that I've, I've noticed, again, in my very brief experience, is that when a, a patient is getting stressed out or if they're getting scared and, or showing you know, outward signs of stress, it is very common for the client to also become stressed and to show that stress. And then the pet gets more stressed that their owner's stressed and we're, we're now into this vicious, vicious cycle. How do you address that with the client? Is it something that, that we should be working with the client as much as we're working with the patient so that we're kind of working as a team or, or, or just how do you, how do you address that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I do a lot of communicating with my clients on what my goal is. And I explain even very early on in the exam process that we are going to be monitoring their their pet's experience with us on an emotional basis as well as a physical basis their entire visit. So as I'm, if I'm going to be needing to take a temperature or do a rectal examination, I'll, 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 I'll tell my clients, so here's where we're going to start and we're going to see how your pet reacts and if we're going to hit a threshold where we're really upset, we're going to, you're going to see I'm going to stop make another plan and that plan may even include him returning on a pre-visit pharmaceutical it just depends on the urgency of the medical need yeah we can if it's if something actually has to be done to reach a diagnosis or uh to get a, a test conducted then we can consider you know some of the injectable forms if we need to but i find helping a client understand that you are advocating for that pet on a physical as well as emotional level when you set that stage in the beginning of the appointment their anxiety level it becomes as the person becomes a lot more manageable and they they don't have to feel now that they trust that you're advocating they don't feel that they have to necessarily protect their pet from anything that you're going to do they can trust that here's what we're trying to do and here's why we're trying to do it but if it's going to hit a certain threshold with your pet we're going to stop and make a new plan that plan may be assessing how important it was was it going to ultimately be of that much diagnostic value and if not um we just kind of go from there gotcha that's great information okay so let's step out of the exam room for a second and go to the the famous the back or the treatment area, um, I find that especially when the owner, or sorry, when the when the pets are separate from their owners, that of course can be a, a major stressor for them. So I think initially, all the time when they're back in treatment area, it can be an initial stressor without anything even happening to them. What tips and tricks do you have for us to when we're in in the treatment area with with a patient, whether it's a very standard procedure like a nail trim or a anal sac expression or something a little bit more invasive um, to, to, to keep them calm and, and, and happy. My best advice on that front is to be proactive versus reactive. Mm-hmm. So every opportunity you can, you get that patient to the back if you need to, to do that, to get it uh, conducted, you'll have them in the back. That's the point that you want to get out the peanut butter or the cheese whiz or the Kong liver paste. 
instead of waiting and trying to do an anal gland expression, have the pet scream or yelp out, scurry around, then you try to offer treats, it's probably a little bit too late. Right. So it's amazing how much you can transform their experience. We're about 50-50 on some of those procedures on whether or not they're done in the room with the owner or back out in the treatment area. And frankly, a lot of time our anal glands are done outside of the exam room because you know the exam room is six feet by six feet, right? So there's no that's that room will get putrid smelling if you do an anal gland expression in that right. tiny little room. So um, you know, really just for for that uh, necessity, we often do still take our patients to the back. But being proactive with those treats and being proactive with placing the towel so that they're not on the cold floor or on the slippery exam table surface back here is going to be really helpful. Using that considerate approach, also a touch gradient, having it's usually a two-man job, so someone's doing the anal expression, the other's holding, but having them speak to the pet in a comforting manner, offering those treats, that can be huge as far as a turnaround change. Great. The other thing that's really important is we know how necessary it is to document your physical exam findings. It's also equally important to document your emotional record with each patient. So for that anal gland expression, you could, if it went extremely well because you offered peanut butter at the beginning, you would definitely want to incorporate that into the pet's emotional record. And a lot of the computer softwares are catching up with this fear-free movement and are making it easier to add in a emotional record to your record keeping in whether that's in Cornerstone or Appomark or some of the other big software companies. Right. That's great. Now, what are your thoughts in terms of bringing the client back to the treatment area? So we will do that in a lot of situations. Um, if we feel that the pet actually does better with the client present and we need a larger space. If it's, you know, some of our rooms get a little tight, if it's a 180 pound dog, we'll often do that. We typically invite our clients back to view x-rays. We do have a digital x-ray so we can look at them in the room with clients, but I think it's still really nice for clients to walk through your hospital and actually see everything that you invest in to keep their pets healthy and all that you're capable of. So it's something that we'll do often. Right. Because another idea that I had, and I'm not sure if it's possible, so I, I guess I'd like to get your uh, your insight on it, is, is to, well, to take a step back. I find, and I think a lot of people find, that there is a lot of parallels and a lot of overlap between the medical care that we provide and the medical care that pediatricians provide. And I would love to have the opportunity to go shadow a pediatrician for just a few hours or for a day. Now, I know that there's going to be some, um, probably some HIPAA things going on and, and other just, you know, fun human medical side shenanigans that we would have to get through to do that. But I feel like if we can make a connection between those two industries and, and how the parents, how the parents experience that doctor's visit with their, with their child, um, and what we can learn from what they do over there, it could really benefit us to what we do uh, in our medical practice. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. So I, I think our profession is a little behind the eight ball. Uh, the, the pediatricians, even the pediatric dentists, mm -hmm. I think are a little farther on this process than we are. In fact, I have an 18-month-old son, and he just got his first haircut last week. Mm -hmm. 
to a kid-specific barbershop and was amazed because they basically handled him in a free-or-free free manner there. And I thought, wow, we, we really have to catch up here in veterinary medicine. So just to briefly describe that, he had a cute little fire truck chair to sit in. She was very gentle with him. He was a little intimidated by the smock. Mm -hmm. So put it on him in the, where it was holding his hands down. She was quick to say, you know what? We're going to just turn it into a cape. And she put it the other way and he had his hands out and suddenly he was fine with it. During the whole haircut, he got these little yogurt drops. He was loving that. She and I were both talking to him and kind of cheering him on the whole way. And when it got to the end of his haircut, she wanted to use the, the little clippers, not really to get his haircut super precise, but it was, she emphasized that today it was important for him to just see and experience them. And the moment that he wouldn't, didn't want to participate anymore, he would stop. But she would do that more and more with each of his haircuts. And she says, this is very important to him. You know, if he has a good experience in these first couple haircuts, it's gonna be a game changer for his entire childhood. And I was like, wow. <laughs> wow, they're totally ahead of us on this fear-free front with these kids and these haircuts. So I think there's a lot we can learn from other industries. Definitely. And that kind of brings me to another thought is that if we can start these these practices as early as possible in the pet's life, that's going to make this just so much easier as, as the pet ages. Yes. When I speak about the patient before and after in presentations, I actually define that there is a short-term as well as a long-term patient before and after that we're chasing veterinary medicine. The short-term one is something that you'll see almost instantly when you begin to layer pheromones with the considered approach and the touch gradient, maybe having scheduling accommodations so that your lobby isn't so stressful. You begin those and you combine the effects of those small changes and instantly get a patient before and after. But that transformation what happened so fast was because it was a reaction to fear, anxiety, and stress that's already established in that patient. These puppies and kittens that are entering our practice now that are getting fear-free handling, if they never even develop fear, anxiety, and stress and make that association with the veterinary office, and rather they now view the veterinary office as this amazing place where they're going to get great mental stimulation as well as high reward treats, suddenly we have this long-term patient before and after that looks much, much different. And the, the way we can practice veterinary medicine actually looks much different in the future. Right. Now, you make another really good point about the difference between, let's say, a puppy age or a kitten age versus an adult animal. What do you do for, let's say, the, the middle-aged, uh, newly adopted dog or cat that came from a shelter may or may not have a, a history of, of, of emotional abuse or emotional trauma and they're just not having it with with you or with anyone other than their their new owner how do you approach those cases so in those cases more than likely pre-visit pharmaceuticals oftentimes in dogs begin with trazodone i might add in some zilkine which is a nutraceutical herbal support as well as even some gabapentin in those cases because we're dealing with some severe emotional trauma that that likely experienced and then begin to work with that pet slowly once they're on those pre-visit pharmaceuticals so 
if they're extremely distraught over nail trims or they're just extremely distraught just being touched by strangers, then we'll oftentimes encourage our clients to return for happy pet visits. We don't charge anything, but that would be where the pet could go ahead and get its pre-dose of Tazodone two hours beforehand and come into our office and get on our scale, get some awesome treats, get a walk through, have a technician walk them through the back area, continue to get treats, continue to have good positive interactions, and then they get to go home. So it's important for these pets to experience our hospitals without having anything uncomfortable or painful happen to them. Gotcha. That's great. Um, now I want to I want to take a step aside. I have I, it may be a, a a question that is specific to me, but I I have a feeling it's not. I want to get your take on how you would handle this situation uh, and ways to make it better. And it's super invasive. It's super complicated. And I think most of us um, have trouble doing it. And that is a nail trim. Um, I, again, from my, my brief time this summer, uh, externing in a clinic uh, and my own experience with my own dog who I've had for almost nine years now, the greatest dog in the world, he will not tolerate having his nails trimmed. Uh, and all these dogs I would see come in, for a nail trim, and it was just the most traumatic experience, again, both for them and for their their uh, their owner, I'm thinking to myself, there has got to be a better way to do this. And I kind of made it a, a little goal for myself and a, a mission that to, to either before I'm uh, out of vet school or within the first few years of, of my veterinary career, to figure out a way to make the dreaded nail trim something that's not like life-ending, apparently, for the animal, so they think. I couldn't agree more. And the key to transforming the patient's experience is going to be a couple things. If that fear, anxiety, and stress is already heavily established and associated with those nail trims, we're going to need to use some form of a pre-visit pharmaceutical, which so incorporate trazodone, gabapentin, filtering, whatever you want to do that. But, but that patient will certainly benefit. The next thing is we actually need to do some behavioral conditioning to reestablish more positive experiences. And that's going to go back all the way back to even seeing the nail trim, the nail trimmers. So with those patients, what we'll often do is uh, they'll come in for what we call a technician appointment for Hopefully, if you've already established that they need that pre-visit pharmaceutical, they have it appropriately on board two hours before the visit, and they're able to come to the back. The technicians will see if they're comfortable eating treats, okay, say the pet is comfortable eating treats. If the pet were not comfortable eating treats at that point, we'd actually go and speak with the doctor about making a dose adjustment. Mm-hmm. Because the pet, we haven't even reduced their FAS score so that they're even comfortable being in the facility. So that would need to be, we wouldn't proceed with the nail trim even at that point. So if the pet's now in the back area, we're still eating treats, we're still happy, that's awesome. Now we're actually gonna get the nail trimmers out of the drawer so the pet gets to actually see them. So we're not touching the pet yet. If he's still eating treats, then we'll continue to do that. And then we'll actually hold the nail trimmer in one hand and then touch a paw with another hand. Mm-hmm watching that body language, still watching how that pet is reacting towards treats. If we're still seeing, we're still getting a green light from the pet, then we can actually get the nail trimmers touching the foot and back and forth. And at any point when that stops happening, 
you want to go back to the point where the pet was comfortable. So say the pet stopped eating treats when the nail trimmers were in one hand and you touched the paw. So then you go, you let go of the paw, you hold the nail trimmers, and you re-engage in giving positive reinforcement treats, whatever that pet really loved. And then that, that visit is done. And you come back, and if you are patient, severe and it does take a little bit of work in the in the headway and I'll talk a minute about how clients react to that but what we're fighting for is long term this is less stressful and less time consuming once we get the pet condition to that it's just a matter of reading them and reading those cues and knowing when to stop and readjust any of those previous pharmaceuticals as needed but we're, you eventually get to the point where the pet will tolerate even touching the, the foot and the nail trimmers at the same time, and then touching the actual foot with the nail trimmers, and then getting around the nail and so forth. So it's a, it's a work in progress, and a lot of times, most practices, nail trimming is a grooming service, and it's a revenue generator, and we're from 10 to $20 per nail trim. So a lot of practices are afraid of using revenue or kind of the time-consuming crunch. And it's, it's definitely something that you've got to manage. They're also really worried that clients who are expecting this to just be a quick service that they come in for and they're done in 10 minutes, that they're going to have a big backlash from, from their clients that the service is suddenly poor and that it couldn't be conducted and that they'll, well, the last doctor could do it. Why can't you do it? Right. That's a challenge for a lot of new grads. Interesting, yeah. And is that um, when you, and this will take a little bit of a face-to-face conversation with that client, once you explain what what is directing your actions and why you are suggesting this alteration, like I know we've, hey, I know we've always had four people holding down and just made it happen, but today we're not going to do that. The, you know, And then you have to go and explain to the client why we're not going to do it the way we've always done it for the last 20 times. Uh, I would say about 80 to 85% of clients are actually completely on board with it. They're not upset that this is going to be coming in from, you know, at different points in time. So we will only get as far through the nail trim as that patient will allow. But um, they, in our, in our clinic, a lot of pet parents are very, very on board with that concept and they're willing to participate in that. Are so much part of their family, and they don't. Once you explain that, I don't want to emotionally traumatize your pet to do this every single time, and we want to work to find another way. They're very on board with it in most cases, and depending on how committed the entire practice is for fear free, it can end up reaching a situation if they're not on board with it that it might be better for them to have the service done somewhere else. Right. That's great. Yeah, and I and I, I asked that. Uh, for two reasons. One, I, it's a, I'm just perplexed by, by how traumatic that experience can be. But I also, I think that's a really great, uh, case example of how the fear-free initiative and the, and the, the tactics that are taught with, with that can really be put to good use and things that we should be, um, keeping an eye out for and, and, and trying to pay attention to in our training, uh, again, to make this experience a lot much better for, for the patient and the client. So to uh, to kind of go into my my last little area of discussion, 
uh, is about what can we be doing as students and as new graduates to to advance our, our knowledge and our skills in in some of these these things we've talked about today and, and, and the teachings of Fear Free and paying attention to the actual experience of the patient and the client versus than just the medical care. What, what can we be doing right now in our training? Well, first things first, make sure you take Fear Free up on their offer to get level one certified at no charge. Right. That's available to all veterinary students as well as veterinary technician students. So you should definitely be doing that. Second is you want to use every opportunity you have to incorporate some of those. So even if your external interface is not necessarily Fear Free, that you still have control of how you approach that pet, if you're going to be using a touch gradient while you're interacting with that pet, you're still in control of that. So you can utilize those tactics. And also watch being observant uh, and seeing how difficult it can be when you're not incorporating fear free. You're going to learn just as much, hopefully, how to not do it necessarily in your, in your practice. But many of you guys will be faced with situations, maybe your first job is a practice who's not yet been exposed to fear free. Mm -hmm. And it can be a little bit heartbreaking because you've you've seen how well things can go. That's how you envisioned practicing as a veterinarian. And you may not feel very supported on that initially at this new job. So I want to leave you guys with a little advice for how to handle a situation where you might be the lone wolf in your practice as far as your belief in fear free or your knowledge and experience with fear free and my best advice is to remember how effective that positive reinforcement training is with our patients because we ultimately want to sell the concept of fear free to this new practice that you want to participate in in the same manner so instead of saying everything you've ever done and every way you've ever practiced medicine is totally wrong that's probably not the way you want to communicate your message. And you're going to have a lot of people shut down right. and not want to interact with you and not want to see the benefits of fear free as opposed to taking those opportunities where you can incorporate a few things. Even say you're going to a clinic, they, they really have nothing. They will have towels. And maybe you just ask for one thing. You just ask for feel list, right? And Maybe you take it upon yourself to buy a little $2 thing of catnip and that just stays in your doctor coat pocket or your scrub top pocket for that day. And when people can see the difference of just having a feel away infused towel with catnip on it, just outside a carrier door, how many cats actually take it upon themselves to come out of that carrier? We don't have to rip them out of the hole. That's going to begin a conversation with a lot of people in your clinic. And then now that they're receptive, you can engage them more. And as far as with the, with the boss or the practice manager, one thing that will probably just make their jaw drop is, is if you actually came up to them and said, hey, you know what, Wednesday or Thursday, I would love to take you out to lunch. And believe me, they don't want anything fancy from you. They really don't want you spending any money on them at all. But like, so it could be fast food or fast casual, as inexpensive as possible, but they're gonna be blown away that you are making that offer. And say, I just wanna sit down with you and, and share 
some of the exposure I've had to Fear Free and some of the ways that it can enhance our practice. And make sure that you're communicating in a non-confrontational manner and in a suggestive manner, but they're gonna be truly impressed that you, you invited them out to lunch, first of all, and the open and communicative way you're trying to relay all this information about Fear Free. Right. That's great. And I also think, too, I, I'm imagining that not only can this be of great benefit to you as a new practitioner when you get hired on at your first or at an early, uh, at a job in your early stage of your career, but also it may be a really good selling point for yourself uh, when you're looking for that first job right out of school. If this is a skill that you have and maybe this is an area that the, uh, the potential hospital you're going to work for doesn't have experience in, it may be a really uh, great thing, a great uh, service that you can offer uh, your potential new uh, new employer. 100%. And the hospitals that are becoming very on board with Fear Free are the progressive hospitals. They're oftentimes also AHA accredited. They're going to be practicing the high caliber of medicine. It's going to be patient-focused medicine. And that's really where a lot of new graduates are going to want to start their career. So it's going to make you that much more marketable to the practices that would be your dream job. Definitely. Definitely. And I, I think kind of just as my my wrapping up thoughts as I'm, as I'm thinking about this out loud is that, like you said earlier, sometimes the veterinary profession is a little bit behind the eight ball from our, our human medical counterparts. And I think the way we've seen veterinary medicine kind of evolve uh, over the past uh, few decades, just in terms of our general standard of care, for example, you know, your aseptic technique in surgery and, and, and just things like that that are so commonplace now, but 20, 30 years ago, that was not the, the standard. I think that hopefully we're going to be starting to see these, these behavioral um, aspects of our practice and ways that we can make the experience better for our patients. Um, become the new standard of practice. And, and it, it, right now being exposed to the, some of this, it pains me to see some of the clinics that are, are furthermore behind the eight ball and doing things the old way, if you will, and still having a lot of stress uh, and fear and anxiety out of their, their patients. So I'm hoping that, that things that we talked about today and things that Fear Free and what you're doing in your hospital are going to kind of set the new standard for for what we as new graduates are going to come into and, and then teach our our next generation of, of veterinarians. Something that's exciting in the Fear Free Pipeline is that in just a couple months, we are gearing up our direct-to-consumer launch, which means that Fear Free Happy Homes is going to be a platform where we're actually educating the public on the importance of recognizing our pet's emotional well-being. So it's going to give them information on how to make their home a lot more stress-free well as enriching, which are going to eliminate a lot of behavior problems that we're struggling to treat in our clinical setting. But it's also going to be really educating pet parents on the importance of seeking out fear-free veterinary care. And that's going to be a huge game changer. We have very little direct-to-consumer national media advertising opportunities for veterinary medicine. So this is going to be a great way to, again, drive people back to the veterinary clinic, making sure the veterinarian stays the expert in pet care. And that direct-to-consumer is going to really help these, these practices that are already embracing it. And I think the practices that are not onboarding it are 
are. There, it's going to be a struggle when people are actually asking, are you participating in fear-free handling? Um, it'll be a tough conversation if the answer is no. Right. Right. Definitely. Well, great. And, and I would also add that things that we can be doing in our training now, um, there's two things that I that come to mind for me is one, read as many books as you can about animal behavior and animal body language, because like you said, in right when we got started recording today, that can sometimes be the first area you look at it is body language. And, um, and again, I don't think we get a lot of training, at least in my experience in, in that. Um, so any way that you can educate yourself on, on animal communication, body language, uh, and kind of what they're trying to communicate with you, um, it would behoove you to do that. Um, and further, if your, uh, your hospital, your, your vet- veterinary school has it, um, spend some time with a veterinary behaviorist. Um, I plan on doing a, a rotation with them here at Mizzou, hoping to learn more of those things that, uh, that we talked about today in terms of, uh, you know, body language, behavior modification, and I think all things that can tie into to what Fear Free's mission is uh, and just ways to make our, our practice much more successful. Yes, and if you can get an opportunity to be with the Board of Behaviors, you should take it. There are only, don't hold me to the exact it's like 72 or 73 of them. Wow. They're a very, very small group, so that's that's a wonderful opportunity if you get that, that chance. Great. All right, well, this has been fantastic. So, uh, again, thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful, and um, and it's been great to learn about the Fear Free Initiative and again, uh, just like you said, I will second it that uh, definitely take advantage of, of the offer that Fear Free is, is giving right now to veterinary students and, and vet tech students um, for the, the level one certification, which is completely uh, complimentary um, from them. Um, it does not take terribly long, at least not in comparison to, uh, to other vet school studies. So um, definitely a great tool to have. Um, and, and yeah, and so thank you, uh, Dr. Reck. This has been great. I think our listeners and and vet students and and new grads are going to take a lot away from this. So thanks again. Fantastic. Thanks. I always love talking about your Great. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Once more, I want to send a huge thank you to Dr. Julie Reck for joining me on the podcast today. For more information on Dr. Reck and her great work, as well as the Fear Free Initiative, please check out this episode's page on vetschoolunleashed.com. And lastly, I want to thank you so much for listening to the Vet School Unleashed podcast. Uh, for more resources and for more information about the podcast, please check us out at www.vetschoolunleashed.com or find me on Instagram or Facebook. You can also connect with me via email at seth at vetschoolunleashed.com. I'd love to hear any suggestions or topics you'd like to hear us talk about, uh, and even reach out to me if you want to be on the podcast yourself and share some insight of your own. And if you feel so inclined, please do feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again, and we will talk to you next time on Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVMs.